0: It's not like everyone needs to go be a farmer by any means, but that we can understand that we are part of the system. To me, that's exactly why knowing your local repair person is vital. When you finish with your phone, if you just throw it in the bin, you need to understand your role in that system.
1: Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering, and I make a monthly podcast for The Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. In this month's bumper episode of The Restart Project podcast, we're thinking about lots of different strands that connect and cross over with each other. How technology and podcasting can be used for good, The similarities between the repair movements and the movements for sustainable farming. How many farmers are also fixers and makers. And hacking and making are important skills for farmers as well as repairers. And about the impact of lockdowns on the production of our food. To explore all of these issues and more, I talk to fellow podcasters Abby Rose and Joe Barrett about their award-winning podcast, Farmerama, which is a monthly magazine show that shares the voices behind regenerative farming and about their special in-depth seasons that look at how our food is produced. Their most recent series, Who Feeds Us, examined the human experiences of food production around the UK and shone a much-needed light on how the farming and growing community coped and adapted through this last year, which was full of experiences that echoed those of our own repair community. I was lucky enough to produce an episode of that series, so it was lovely to reconnect and check in with them about how they feel about it now. Also... Who Feeds Us has just been announced as one of the three finalists in the category of Best Food Podcast or Broadcast in the upcoming Guild of Food Writers Awards. As well as hearing from Abby and Joe, we'll also hear clips from the shows they have made, and so we'll be hearing the voices of farmers and food producers throughout the show.
0: Hi, so I'm Abby Rose, one part of Farmerama. I have worked in the farming world, really, for the last six, seven years. And I do a few different things. Part of it is making apps for small to medium scale and regenerative farming. The reason I got into all of this is because my parents actually started farming about 15 years ago now. And I really started to understand how central farming is to all of our lives. and, And actually, the decisions farmers make are key To everything, how much carbon's in the atmosphere, you know, if there's flooding in a nearby town, how nutritious our food is, all of that is like down to farmers in a certain way. And so really they're part of the decision makers of our future. So it's how can I work with and be part of the farming community and help have those decisions be more positive or as positive as possible. So I make the apps for farming, I make Farmerama, the podcast. And then I also, for two months of the year, I'm on the farm in Chile helping actually farming, which I really love as well.
2: Hi, I'm Joe Barrett. I'm the co-founder of Rama with Abby. I'm the person in Farmerama with no farming experience. I'm a podcaster and I do think with audio, I do bits of exhibition design and I do bits of using audio as a tool in social change, I would say. The other thing that I do is I'm very involved in the open knowledge movement. So I work campaigning for the idea that all information should be open and free and accessible. And that covers lobbying governments and also building the technology that allows that to happen.
1: Right. So you've got a whole like range of different perspectives on farming like with those different things and also mixing farming with technology. It sounds like you play the role within Farmerama that I like to think of myself playing within the Restart Project of being the person who knows nothing about the topic. You know, it's useful to be that person, I think. We know when things need to be explained a bit better because we're not inside the room. So we rarely talk to other podcasters on our show. So it's quite exciting. So can you tell us more about your podcast, Farmarama and how it came to be started?
0: Joe and I were doing podcasts already, actually. Joe was making them and (laughs) I was helping bring the content together for Tech for Good. This was maybe six, seven years ago now. I was just starting on my farming journey, really. And I went to a farm hack. It was the first one in the UK. And it was like this amazing coming together of farmers of all different ages and in one corner you had this bubbling compost tea maker on the other corner you had a a biochar oven that you could cook on and heat your house and you were making biochar at the same time there was blacksmith workshops and then also there was 3D printing so it was like this amazing mix of all different types of technology going on and all different farming conversations and I learned so much and then came away from that event and realized that actually it's really difficult to find that information anymore. Anywhere. Farmers are quite a disparate bunch, like they really physically are not close together generally. And so it felt like there was a real lack of being able to share that knowledge more frequently. And so we were talking about it with Joe and there was actually at that point another person involved, Nigel. Indie Farmer was his thing. And we were all just having a chat and Farmerama was born. It just felt really right. It was completely natural that that was something that we could do and should do. And that we could really support the unearthing and making available this knowledge that is there in the farming community that is so hidden from so many of us. And so that's really what was at the root of Farmerama when it was born.
1: To give you a feel for Farmerama, here's a clip from one of the early episodes, episode 9, recorded and presented by Rebecca Chan. This clip touches on ways that farmers modify their equipment to be more suited to their needs, and we'll hear more about that later in this episode.
3: The farming life can be tough, especially if you're a young farmer just getting started. FarmHack is a worldwide community of farmers working to make this process a little easier and less isolating. The community gathers around building and modifying tools. Severin Von Chana Fleming is one of the founders of the project, and with the movement now picking up speed in the UK, she came to Soil City in Glasgow to share her experiences and to talk all things tools.
4: So they're basically these little clusters of technology solutions and tool ideas that have to do with the common problems of small farms. So there's different like camps of tools. There's... A lot of tools around arduinos which is like an open source little mini robot that can be programmed to do actions like send you a text message when your greenhouse is too hot or send you a message if your fence your cattle fence is down and there's kits uh, to convert tractors to electric and so that's really nice and you can have a solar powered tr- tractor then there's a bunch of equipment that's Around milling and grain processing, because the grain processing is another area where it's gone gigantic and grain processing has become one of the major points of corporate control in our food system.
2: For me, that's what was really exciting about this. It was really thinking about the technology of a podcast. It just seemed like it was a really good fit. I mean, as Abby says, farmers are a long way away from each other because then you need a lot of space to farm stuff. But also farmers are doing a lot of the type of repetitive tasks that will allow you to have the radio on in your tractor cab. Right from the beginning, we really wanted to be useful to farmers. So it was really about sharing knowledge, sharing experiments and creating a space where farmers could hear about what other farmers were doing, but also feed back into the conversation. So as opposed to Abby and I traveling around with a tape recorder being roving reporters, a lot of our content at Farmerama is sent in by farmers and by people we meet. There is a real community feeling to Farmerama, which is very different to I think any other kind of podcast I've worked on. Another thing that we do in Rama is we like to spend some time teaching farmers about how to make basic audio recordings and how to get involved in that world if they want to. And there's also a part there about farmers learning about the value to them in sharing their knowledge and experience with a wider group of people beyond the farming community. Rama has developed into something which is more than just for farmers. And we've made a few specialist series which are designed to appeal to a wider more general audience and that, that's something which has come about gradually and naturally over time
1: I think what you're saying very much resonates with what we're trying to do with the Restart Project podcast as well—is bring together that community of repairers that we know, and in fact, the pandemic has closed that community down a little bit more. Like we we haven't had as many voices in our shows, and we've been talking, you know, recently about doing the kind of thing you're talking about about using the repairers out there to send their stuff to us so we can get more voices in. So there's a lot we can learn from the approach that you've been taking, and I think there's a lot for listeners to the Restart. Project Project that they can get from Farmer Armour. We've already sort of touched on this, but you recently released an in depth series called Who Feeds Us, which was a follow up to your award winning series Serial that's spelt with a C. And, you know, I had the privilege of producing one of the episodes of Who Feeds Us for you. Why did you feel the need to make Who Feeds Us? about supply chains last year in uh, in 2020 back in you know it seems like a, a decade ago now
0: yes it does <laughs> when the covid lockdown first hit in the uk i'm sure everyone who was here will remember that there was like some quite seminal moments where people were panic buying and supermarket shelves were pretty empty and i think that that was a very formative moment for a lot of people something that i think we hadn't conceived was really possible. And in response to that, people obviously looked elsewhere for food. And there were all sorts of different ways that people were engaging, whether that was like trying to find where their local farm was or using alternative suppliers online. But a lot of it involved connecting more directly with the producers. Who feeds us was really born out of the idea of building the stories and just remembering that moment in time of how everyone felt and how people were responding and actually how many people did actually serve or work for and with their communities to really make sure that everyone was fed in different ways. And so I think That's what Who Feeds Us is and was. You know, it's capturing this moment, but also recognising just how powerful eating and working with your community in that way around food can be, as well as highlighting the injustices that are there. We worked in a very collaborative way, and by virtue of that, we responded to the stories that were told rather than trying to force an imprint where we started on it.
1: I mean, Who Feeds Us was... You know, from my point of view of like working on it, it wasn't just in the audio that you responded to the pandemic. You were funded by the COVID Relief Fund.
0: Farming the Futures COVID Response Fund.
1: And there were different producers that kind of were called in. And one of your remits in that was to get people from different backgrounds and different traditions. Like there were radio people, there were DIY people like me. There was a, a range of people. In fact, lots of people who would not have had much exposure to farming. Even with the way that you didn't give us the stories, there were other people involved as well. So do you want to say a little bit more about the way that you organise putting together Who Feeds Us?
2: When we designed how to make this, it was super important that we got a range of voices on tape, but also a range of voices and perspectives in making it. We really wanted to make sure that this really spoke to the whole of the experience of people in the UK. It's always important for Farmerama that we're speaking to rural communities and people who are not focused in London and cities, because it's farming, obviously. But we really wanted to stretch and make sure that we were covering people in a wide area. And we had people from the Shetland Islands all the way down to Devon and in cities. And the way we were able to do that is that we worked with dedicated people who we called community collaborators.
0: One of the things we work on at Farmerama constantly is sharing underrepresented voices, and that is central to everything we do. I guess the community collaborator was a response to the fact that we could only ever capture one version of the COVID story by virtue of who we knew. So the idea was, how can we work with communities in this COVID times? We worked with six different community collaborators, someone from Northern Ireland, someone from Scotland, not just one people around the UK generally (laughs) so England Wales and then we also had someone who was sharing more like from a Muslim perspective what was their experience you know it happened through Ramadan and also as a black person in Sheffield like what was that experience obviously that's too generalized but We were trying to hone in on different individual experiences that were varied and see if there was resonance and, and coming together. They went away. They connected with different people. They shared stories from their communities. So these voices just popped up through the ether. Some of the interviews, I just was so moved because these people are out there sharing their stories and these different communities coming through. Working with different audio producers and the community collaborators was really like one of the joys, real joys of Who Feeds Us.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a real joy for me as a as a producer coming in and it felt like there was so much knowledge, like all kinds of knowledge involved in the process. It was great to have people from the communities championing different kinds of farming, different kinds of production. And like for me, like putting together the episode I put together, which was about bread, you know, having these three people from very different backgrounds in different parts of the country, you know, one who works at the Brixton Windmill. It was, you know, amazing to sort of like see the commonalities in these different stories as well as the very big differences and the different approaches. Everybody shared a a kind of a care about food and Production that is rare though like that was one of the things like even though they were from different backgrounds they cared about what they were doing in a way that was you know humbling
3: for me personally it was really good for my mental health when everything around you feels like it's going up in flames the panic that you feel and losing the things in life that kind of keep you grounded, whether that's like going to your workplace every day, or for me it was uni, or freelance projects that had coming up that I was really looking forward to, all suddenly gone. Going to the mill that is a familiar space where I repeat the same process that someone's been doing for you know hundreds of years before me is quite meditative, and that is a good thing. And then when we started donating flour to the local food banks... Again, like it it definitely did give me a sense of purpose because I felt like, yeah, I was doing something good for people in our very immediate area so that the woodmill itself is literally in the middle of an estate, Blenheim Gardens estate in Brixton. And that was the first food bank that we started donating to. And then we went a bit further out to Brixton um, and Norwood Food Bank. This one woman got quite emotional when we were talking and she was just saying, you know, losing your job at a time like this and and Depending on services like the food bank, you're obviously grateful that they're there and you're grateful for the people that can help out. But it's just this kind of shock and confusion that this is what things come to for a lot of families in this country. And it's just it just feels good to just, even if it's a tiny help, just to be healthy.
1: That was Abigail Holsborough from the Brixton Windmill in episode four of Who Feeds Us, which, as mentioned, is the episode which I produced. As Abigail suggests... The lockdown worked to highlight inequalities that were perhaps more hidden before. For Restart, the biggest issue that became exposed was that of digital inclusion. Over the course of the last year, we've been so proud of how the repair community has pulled together to repair laptops and other essential devices so they could be donated to people in need, such as students and the elderly. Did the focus of the show change as 2020 progressed?
2: The feeling of making it was messy and complicated. And what we were seeing, though, is that that actually reflected how things were in the UK and how food producers were feeling. One of the few things which was just really striking is that everybody was just like working so hard at it. And also, like, as you mentioned, that people cared about where the things that we eat come from and that people saw it as their role to do that from a place of
0: care. We started to hear it as it was this like choir of voices. And then also there were certain themes or ideas that did come through that we really weren't expecting. I didn't foresee that dignity was going to become a thing in relation to the food system. I and mean, you know, I've been working in the food system for many years and that that really was super important in a time of crisis, that dignity is so front and centre for s- some people. I
2: think that one of the things we expected was that the experience of lockdown would really make people refocus on like innovation and on what they needed to do to make things work in a changed world. And we could use and take forward some of those lessons into the world of sustainable agriculture, farming, everything that we want to work towards. And there were certainly elements of that. But That was not everybody's experience by a long way.
1: What is regenerative farming?
0: Regenerative farming, it doesn't have an official definition, but essentially it's farming in relationship, in friendship. In concertina with the natural world and with communities so it's both about ecology and people and in a way they're not separate it really looks like people starting to consider that the biological systems on the farm are at the core of what is going to make a farm successful and so that's soil health That's biodiversity and wildlife, and that's grazing in certain ways. There's lots of different aspects of what it might look like if you do regenerative farming. One thing you can say is that in a way, it's actually different on every farm because it's a response to the natural systems and the ecosystems that are there. And it's amazing how different that is from farm to farm, even within a region. It's also a response to who's running the farm and what do they want from their life? And how is that reflected by the natural surroundings? So it's not the most simple answer. But in a nutshell, if you hear about regenerative farming, and someone's trying to give a really oversimplified answer, they'll say it's about building soil health and biodiversity. But I would say it's So much more than that.
1: How does it fit in with solving the climate and biodiversity crises?
0: I would say that it's about good soil health. Soil is this miracle substance. That's the only way I can describe it. And like five years ago, I thought soil was dirt and I couldn't have cared less about it. And now I think it's the most important thing in my life and in all of our lives. Healthy soil is able to hold huge quantities of water. It's able to filter water, clean water. It is able to build healthy plants. And it also is able to sequester large amounts of carbon. In one handful of healthy soil, there's more microorganisms than there are people on the planet. Okay, so it's like this Inconceivable amount of life below our feet. And there's also like the fungal networks, and they're all interconnected. They extend for miles and they communicate between different plants and they'll share resources, they'll share water, they'll signal pests are coming, all these kinds of things. So it's this amazing like conversation mesh that goes on below ground that really is at the root of our hydrological cycles, our nutrition, all of that. It's just all happening down there and it's so well tuned. And unfortunately, we had not understood that. People say that we know about 5% of all we can know about soil today, like the best scientists. Unfortunately, in the last century, we really thought we knew something else about plants, growing plants, and that was we'll just feed them ourselves. But actually feeding them ourselves is like nowhere near what they need in order to really flourish in the long term. And also the other unfortunate side of that is that it totally neglects that soil system, which is all about sequestering carbon and storing water, preventing flooding, like all of those other things that a healthy soil does. If we just go and apply chemicals above ground to feed the plant, we destroy the soil in all of its other forms and uses. I'm
1: remembering... Back to the first episode of Cereal, talking about seeds and different grains and like how we've messed up how we grow our wheat and our grains in general by not letting it do its thing, by deciding that we're going to get involved and uh, help it. And actually, like with so many things, when people think they're helping, they're not always helping. Uh, And we just have done that on an industrial scale.
5: There was definitely an explicit awakening and I had text messages after text messages, phone call after phone call of people, you know, asking me these questions, you know. And, and what I saw from friends who I've been friends with a long time, they started to think, where is my food coming from? Even though I've been plugging it to them and talking to them for ages, they, they started to really ask that question. How, you know, food is flying all over the place just to get to us. Like how much they depend on Spain, for example, for fruits and vegetables. This really kind of clicked with a lot of people I think and the Muslim community you know one of the whole things about choosing the faith of Islam or even being brought up in the faith of Islam is the idea of justice like you cannot have this exploitation going on and I think that kind of opened up people's eyes. I took so much pride feeding a family the other day where I said that fat has been rendered from an animal that has lived five minutes away and that's what we're using to cook with. I didn't have to fly in any oil from any country. I didn't have to process any oil. To localise the food, to be close to your food, this is the only way forward if you want to live that conscious way, I think, because you're going to get stuck in the global system. And COVID has exposed that. A hundred years ago, you knew the guy who killed the cow, you knew the farmer, but now it's like packaged up and sent to you. This idea of taib, previously where the scholars looked at it, was talking about how... You knew the person who grew the wheat, so you can understand that the bread was coming from a conscious place. But that doesn't even exist now. Embedded in that is dignity, because it's about that person being given the dignity to work, the dignity to express himself in his work. He's given a fair price. I think dignity and justice are completely embedded anyway, because you can't people's dignity will not be given unless there is justice.
1: That was Mostin Hassanin from Harmony Farm in episode two of Who Feeds Us. So in Who Feeds Us, you spend a lot of time with the idea of knowing where your food is coming from and also about the dignity of the producer, which you've already kind of mentioned. We think that there's a similar importance in knowing your local repair person and building the repair community. Being disconnected from electronic supply chains and the people who build and repair our electronics contributes to the amount of e-waste being produced every year. So this understanding of production is crucial. Can you tell us a little bit more about this disconnect from the production of our food? And is it something that you also see in other industries or in consumer culture in general?
0: Definitely. Directly related to farming, another really good example is the fashion industry. Many farmers are producing fibres, and yet I don't think many people think of their clothes as coming from farms. Also, a lot of farmers produce energy, Again, I don't think many people make that connection. But it's funny, I I find like the words like disconnect and knowing where your food comes from, I almost feel like we've got to a place where that's been said so many times and somehow it just doesn't land with people. And so I wonder if we need to stop lamenting the loss and look to inspire or I don't know what it will take to have that experience of being part of the system. I, and I think that's key. It's not like everyone needs to go be a farmer by any means, but that we can understand that we are part of the system. To me, that's exactly why knowing your local repair person is vital. When you finish with your phone, if you just throw it in the bin, you need to understand your role in that system and like what you're doing and, and your output. Is going somewhere rather than just seeing ourselves as individuals going through life. One, it's rather uninspiring to think of life like that in the end, I think. And two, it doesn't work (laughs) is what we're finding. You know, if you think of the mesh and the network just as lots of lines, you end up with crises. So we need to start seeing ourselves as part of the mesh and, and part of the system. I think that's what people can get excited about potentially, or that's what I'm excited about. And that definitely seems to relate to what you guys are doing.
1: What you're saying there really resonates with a lot of thoughts I've had about repair during the time I've been working on the podcast. It's interesting, isn't it? Like a repairer or a, somebody who does maintenance on technology, it's not completely unlike being a farmer. Caring for things, making sure that they work, not doing more than you need to. Those are all lessons that farmers and repairers can kind of get. It's really interesting, these connections that we can make.
0: Many farmers are repairers, like in heart and soul. (laughs) They know how to repair things. My family's farm, if I were to have to take it on tomorrow fully myself, like that's the scariest thing for me (laughs) because I haven't got a clue how to make sure everything works if it breaks. I just don't know where I would start. And so there you can see like we really undervalue repair as part of a flourishing ecosystem.
1: Right. I mean, most, if not all farmers work with tools and tools are technology. So whether they're using electronic tools or whether they're using a hoe, it's still technology that needs to be taken care of and cared for and repaired. Speaking of which, the right to repair is a big topic for farmers across the world with the most high profile case being farmers fighting against John Deere for the right to repair their own tractors. Have you seen this movement progress in recent years, if at all? Or what's your kind of understanding of that movement?
0: I mean, obviously, I think that's vital and ludicrous. And it's part of the same thinking of like the agrochemical industry as a whole, which has been, let's take agency away from the farmer. Let's make their life easier in inverted commas. But actually, it's impoverishing farmers often. And some farmers really love fixing their tractor and figuring it out. Like that's part of their joy yeah, okay, it may save them time if they don't have to, but actually it's this loss of agency that is really, like, disconcerting. And I think that's horrible. That's where, essentially, farmers could just be replaced by machines because we've taken every tool away from them. The only thing I would say to that is that just from a farmerama perspective, that's almost like a symptom of a sick situation. You know, the fact that John Deere have blackboxed their technology and, and meant that, you had to hire one of their technicians to fix your tractor suddenly that's all part of the whole mentality and the whole way the farming system is set up today but i would say that everything we do and talk about is at the core of bringing agency back to the farm bringing knowledge back to the farm recognizing the value of the human beings and all the other beings on the farm and not having the power sit with companies and external bodies if you go onto the FarmHack website, there's detailed blueprints of how to create all sorts of tools for your farm, low cost. So I think there is also a question of maybe we just need to move away from reliance on those big players. We know what their model is. It's going to take a lot to change it. So how can we just think differently?
2: Something I can maybe say on data. There's a lot of big agrochemical companies piggybacking on the open data movement to making the argument that, you know, decisions should be data driven. Data for a farmer means something completely different different. The senses of the farmer understanding their space, like nobody can really understand their farm, their environment, their culture, as well as a farmer can. And so there's quite a lot of examples of like big data companies telling people how to farm and then things falling apart because old knowledge, different types of knowledge are being wiped away in basically the interests of this big business model. We should be focusing on the individual farmer and trusting their experience because there's just so much value and understanding which is not captured in other types of data so it's again it's a symptom of exactly the same thing i think
0: interestingly like you know i think open knowledge is really really important and i have seen in the farming community That as I started out by saying regenerative farming, like every farm is different. You need to have very localized knowledge, literally of like every 10th year, it rains more heavily on the north side, like specifics. What I've seen generally with data is that data is most valuable to the big players. So it's most valuable in the global sense. It's not particularly valuable on the farm sense. Having said that, I create tools that collect data just for your farm. But we approach it very differently than a lot of the like large-scale data collection that happens out there. I can give you a really good example that really got me fired up and made me really realize just how much data is disempowering farmers, unfortunately, even when they're collecting it at times. In the UK, every time a farmer sells like a bushel of wheat... They pay the levy and it goes towards like research and innovation for all farmers across the UK. Farmers have to fill out like what their yields were, what they put in, all that kind of stuff. That data gets put together and then it gets released to the public. But the people actually using that data are like traders, global traders or, you know, trading software that's sucking it all up, piecing it together, putting it together with lots of other data, spitting it out, charging a heck of a lot to big companies. And then they actually make money off the data. Whereas the farmer, they've actually paid <laughs> they've paid some money to have that data produced. They're learning very little from it. So I just think data is a funny thing when it comes to farming. And we need to tread really carefully.
3: I can imagine that tech and design... And farm hack would really appeal to younger farmers. I wondered how it works with uh, linking up older farmers, how older farmers are responding to it.
4: Well, younger farmers are the ones with less money, so that's a, a powerful incentive for invention. Um, the older farmers often have a lot of equipment and often have a lot of tools, you know, like a, a shop on their land where they have been tooling, fixing their machinery for a long time and have a lot of skill and knowledge and experience and just mechanical intuition which they many times are excited to share so part of the role of the organizer and the social work that is involved in this is to do with setting up the circumstances and making the hot soup appear on time and and getting the word out to help those new farmers get in connection with and access to and dialogue with the older and experienced farmers. So that shouldn't only be a counterculture, that really is for everyone. When it works, it makes for good friendships, friendships based around good work to make good farming possible.
1: That was Rebecca Chan again with Severin von Chana Fleming from FarmHack in episode 9 of Farmerama. And you kind of already spoken about this a little bit as well, talking about farm hack. I mean, is there a maker slash hacker or equivalent culture in farming?
0: Definitely. On farmer experimentation and hacking things together and making things work is like core to what it means to be a farmer for many, many people. Farmers are incredibly resourceful. They have to be. And so you're always meeting farmers who are like, oh, yeah, we soldered that on there and now it does this as well. Or, you know, they're always changing the machinery or using a baler for applying comb they're incredibly creative with it
2: all. I think that also with the climate changing so rapidly, things are changing more quickly than farmers are used to. And that is also creating a real focus on having to be adaptable, which is obviously a negative and worrying thing. But there's also like space for innovation there too. Abby taught me this, but it's one of my favourite things about change and innovation in In terms of farming and it's about how farming is so tied to the seasons and to the yearly cycles that farmers like say you take over your family farm when you're 30 you've maybe got 30 goes around the sun 30 cycles of growing and harvesting and selling to get something right you can't take a massive risk on it because it's your whole family's livelihoods are on it so it can be very difficult to make fast change in farming and there's some very specific things about what it means to farm which make that type of thinking more difficult or at least more different than applying change in other areas necessarily. Since you told that to me, Abby, it's always just really struck me.
0: Yeah, it struck me too because both coming from the tech world where you iterate and think fast and change things all the time is just not possible in that way and you're you're truly governed by the natural systems and you work with them it's so different in the tech world. That's
2: really interesting. You can't agilely... Produce a cow. <laughs> I mean it would not it would not go well, I would imagine.
1: In these next clips from episode three of Who Feeds Us, you'll hear Helene Schultz from London Freedom Seed Bank, Neville Portis from No Diggity Gardens, and d Woods from Granville Community Kitchens, and they're talking about the concept of seed sovereignty.
3: Becoming a part of a movement that is trying to reclaim that process that is arguing for seed sovereignty, which is concerned with reclaiming seed as a public good and a commons. When we are relying on large agrochemical companies for our seed, we cannot be building resilient, localised, just food systems, because we're always going to need those external inputs.
2: People bring things you've never heard of or they, or they bring something and you've never heard of it, they grow it and then you find out you know it from a different name and, and those conversations spark off where names come from and, and the history of those things. So culturally, it's interesting that people bring a little bit of whatever, whether it's something that, that the granddad grew for them when they were little or, or, you know, these stories.
6: For me, especially being, you know, of Caribbean and central american heritage it is about liberation it is about having freedom from a colonized viewpoint of what i should eat how i should eat what i should grow and how i should produce that food so it is for me about reclamation of traditional african heritage and amerindian foodways and being able to do that wherever I am and appreciate knowledge and skills that we have as a community around food and food production. When we understand sort of how plants grow and where they grow and sort of composting and seed saving, I think it provides a really firm foundation for people to start getting into the politics of food. But for me it's about reclaiming a food sovereignty and sort of claiming a health sovereignty at the same time.
1: The concept of seed sovereignty also resonated a lot with Restart as it looks at giving back ownership to the individual and public to control the production of their food and also their culture and their history. We see that in our movement where people want to be able to repair their own electronics so that they can have actual ownership over them. In addition, it's important to preserve skills like repair in our communities and for younger generations. Can you tell us more about this idea of seed sovereignty and how it helps farmers to regain agency?
0: Through time, there's been tradition of saving seeds. And that's often been either at the community level or individual families. And seeds were like the most important thing on a farm in many ways. Because that's what allowed you to have your next season of crop. And so a certain amount of a crop would always be about saving seeds. That's been taken away to a certain extent. So in the UK, and this is an EU-wide initiative essentially there are restrictions on what seeds can be shared you can save seed for yourself but say you wanted to give some to your neighboring farm that's actually illegal to do that as far as i'm aware it's almost like biosecurity in inverted there that was purportedly why the legislation was put in place but actually, it was a complete quashing of the seed saving and sharing movement and root of culture in so many different places and, and different ways. So seed sovereignty is really about reclaiming that right to, one, build up your own seed banks, but two, to share that with others and to be able to have it be a people-led seed movement, not a government-secured seed system. That's what seed sovereignty is is about in many ways but also as you were alluding to there's huge cultural tradition and stories that are passed through seeds and you know even how a vegetable tastes for like a tomato tastes on the farm in Chile for example a few different people work on the farm and we like grow the tomatoes of their grandmothers and we literally call it oh that's the hortensia one because that's their grandmother's name that person always wants to have those tomatoes (laughs) so there's a lot tied up with seeds and tastes and culture and so as soon as you take that away from people, it really breaks down so many aspects of what it means to be a human and to interact with the natural world and to eat. That also is what Seed Sovereignty is about. It's about reclaiming the dignity of being in relationship with your food and the root of that food.
1: Right. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's like an agency thing as well, isn't it? It's like my generation, I feel like I wasn't taught very basic things, how to repair clothes, how to repair technology, gardening. All of these different kinds of things—not just been my generation, it's been multiple generations—have kind of been separated from these these things that they allowed us to connect with our environments or our our worlds and work out what we want from our worlds and from our lives. It feels like everything's kind of been outsourced in certain kinds of ways to technology and to the companies behind that technology, which is the most worrying thing. And it's it's so interesting to hear you talk about this in farming and restart talking talks about this in, in, you know, repair and technology and, and products, but I think it's, it's in everything. We're now having to relearn the stuff that previous generations learned. I mean, my dad, he did try and teach me a few things like changing fuses and very basic stuff. But I was too, you know, enticed by the world To like pay attention Some of the real, you know, basics I could have paid a bit more attention to And then I would have a bit more agency And sovereignty in my own life
0: I really do think that it's really an exciting time To be more interested And have more understanding Of what does it mean to be a farmer Or to farm, to work with land It's so connected To the social justice movement You know, land ownership is at the core Also of farming, having access to land is a huge deal and only going to become more and more important, especially as the climate's becoming less and less predictable. I would just encourage people who are excited about Restart Stuff to maybe tune in to some of the Farmerama podcasts or just even go and ask some farmers what they're doing. And you'll be amazed at how much it actually relates to your life (laughs) and how much effect you can have in it. And I think that that's really exciting.
2: There's lots of ways to get involved. Like as soon as you start looking in your local area it's very easy to find people who are growing things and people who really want people to get involved and are creating the spaces for people to learn and get their hands dirty and that's something that's really emerged for me in this making of farmerama like there's so many people doing so many amazing things
1: Talking to Abby and Joe and hearing from the people and communities featured on Farmarama, really showcases how diverse, adaptable and caring farmers and growers are. Somewhere down the line, we're all involved, or at least we all benefit from this community. Our food being the most obvious example, but other aspects as well. Many of the themes discussed today reflected struggles that repairers face too. From autonomy and agency over our devices and tools to working to gain a better understanding of where materials come from and who is making our products. And as we've heard, there isn't a binary here. Many farmers are repairers and hackers, farming and food production is done by many communities, and it's done in cities as well as in the countryside. There are so many topics covered on Farmerama that we didn't discuss today. So if you'd like to hear more, you can go to Farmerama.co and explore their amazing back catalogue of episodes. Listening back to our conversation, it struck me that, as you'd expect from a farmer, Abby repeatedly uses the term root or roots to talk about these issues. And I'm reminded that the word radical means to grasp at the root of the issue. When we think about radical change, we often think of it as violent, but I think remembering that roots are what nourish and sustain us might help us to see a different version of what radical change can be. As movements that are striving to change things for our collective benefit grow, it's important that we think about the roots of those movements in all of the meanings that roots can have as well as about the stems and the branches and the flowers that we are growing out with and that we are working towards. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found Wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the Restart Project. Org, where we've also set up a fundraiser. So if you've enjoyed this episode, do make sure that you donate there to help to fund the future of the podcast. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sounds. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant, Holly, who did the research and planning for this episode. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.